Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. What's it like to be the beat writer for Duke University men's basketball? We'll talk about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 47 of The Bridge. (laughs) Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you missed the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available 48 hours after the initial broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode on iTunes or on my website at londonbridge.com on Friday nights for the best pre-game podcast in sports. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this show. If anything, you can call in or text into the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you might just be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Lots to do. Let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren. We've got a special holiday segment coming up later in the show. I hope you all enjoyed your Thanksgiving holiday and Thanksgiving break. But let's get started with the number one parody segment in sports radio. There's usually no easy way to get fired, especially when it comes as quite the surprise. We don't usually discuss hockey on this prestigious program, but listen up, hockey fans. Here's this week's edition of Sports News Read Like Real News. It's almost never easy getting fired, especially when you actually enjoy working at your job. When it comes to coaching in the National Hockey League, what better environment than to have your home arena located in the state of Florida, where the coldest you'll ever be would be from sliding face first on the ice. After an 11-year playing career and almost two decades of coaching jobs, Gerard Gallant got his first head coaching gig in the NHL when he first took over the Florida Panthers in 2014. He improved the team by 9 wins and 25 points in his first season, then led the Panthers to a 24-12-4 record at last year's All-Star break. The Panthers went on to finish with a club record 47 wins and 103 points, with their second division title in franchise history, and with Gallant named as the finalist 
to be recognized as Coach of the Year with the Jack Adams Award. This year, the Panthers got off to an 11-10-1 start, but this past Sunday, Gallant was fired as head coach of the Panthers and didn't exactly receive a fond farewell from franchise brass. That Sunday, the Panthers lost in Raleigh, North Carolina, 3-2. He spoke to the media after the game as usual, but was informed shortly after of his execution. I mean firing. The news was so unexpected, his bags had to be unloaded from the Panthers bus before it headed to the airport. Bags and belongings in hand, Gallant, along with assistant coach Mike Kelly, who was also fired, were left to hail their own taxi cab to find a way home. To make matters even more awkward, an employee for the Hurricanes, the team which had just beaten the Panthers, helped the unemployed coaches load their bags into the taxi trunk. The new head coach of the Panthers will be Tom Rowe, who also happens to serve as the team's general manager after getting thrust into that role in January of this year after only three years of coaching experience in the AHL. Rowe did some interviews on his first day as head coach slash GM and calmed our fears. No worries, folks. Rowe confirmed that the heartbroken coach would indeed be reimbursed for his taxi ride after being fired. We can only hope that also included a trip to Taco Bell. I'm John Lund for Sports News Red Like Real News. Let's take a quick break so we don't get fired. When we come back, we've got a special holiday segment comparing Thanksgiving leftovers to professional sports. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Thanksgiving Day is a top three food holiday meal. No question about it. Don't at me on Twitter. That's, of course, assuming it's a traditional meal and not some Chinese takeout, some boxed wine, some shitty romantic comedy movie on Netflix while you sit alone on the couch with your cat. Sorry to whomever that happened to several days ago. Anyway, we're talking turkey, stuffing, mashed potatoes, the works, a traditional spread, what you'd see in an episode of Mad Men or the Brady Bunch or Leave it to Beaver. Not only is Thanksgiving Day a top three food day, but I would argue... The leftovers the day after are very close behind. The Thanksgiving leftover sandwich where most of the items that were on your plate the day before go between two pieces of bread, heavenly. When our fictitious producer Eddie Ocasio first pitched the idea of a leftover segment, I had to find a way to incorporate leftover heaven into the sports world. Ye of little faith. Here's the debut of a special post-holiday segment, Thanksgiving Leftovers. Now let me just preface that with some ground rules. The purpose of this segment will be to name some of the top Thanksgiving Leftovers and then match up either a professional athlete or player that best exemplifies that leftover. 
There's a little addendum to this segment, however, in that the players or the coaches that I've chosen, I also view as leftovers. Players or coaches that perhaps are past their prime, maybe never reach their full potential, maybe struggling right now, are still in the league for whatever reason. You'll see what I mean when we get through this list, but you're not going to see names like Tom Brady and LeBron James and Steph Curry, etc. We're more focused on what you could deem leftover players or coaches to go along with Thanksgiving leftovers. So here are some of the top Thanksgiving leftovers and the players and coaches that best go along with them. First up is Turkey and John Elway, the GM of the defending Super Bowl champions and a two-time Super Bowl MVP. Turkey is the building block of a successful Thanksgiving dish. Without it, do you even really know it's a Thanksgiving dish? You need turkey. It's the main course, the money maker. In the same token, John Elway, left over from his Denver Broncos playing days to now become the GM of the Broncos, has helped to build a successful Super Bowl champion contending team, just like turkey helps your Super Bowl championship winning Thanksgiving dish. Number two, stuffing. J.R. Smith of the Cleveland Cavaliers. <laughs> stuffing only shows up on your dinner table, what, twice a year, Christmas and Thanksgiving? Maybe once or twice the other 10 months of the year if you're feeling wild. But when stuffing is on your table for Thanksgiving, for Christmas, or those other one or two times, it's solid. You know you're getting out of stuffing, and it's going to be great. Just like J.R. Smith. How many games does he disappear in? He really only shows up to a handful throughout the NBA season. But when he does, when he's draining those eight threes a game, solid, reliable, tasty. Number three, mashed potatoes and Bartolo Colon. A little fluffy, maybe a little underappreciated, but holds everything together perfectly. You can always count on it. You can pair it with anything. All reliable. Some might argue that it's the best item on your plate, which is exactly what Bartolo Colon was last year for the New York Mets. Number four, cranberry sauce. Draymond Green of the Golden State Warriors. Some people like it. Some people don't. Some people forget cranberry sauce is even there, which is exactly what you can say about Draymond Green. Some people forget he's even there now that the Warriors have Kevin Durant. Though both are sometimes forgotten about, it does add a unique aspect to the whole dish or the whole team. Number five, gravy. And Tony Romo of the Dallas Cowboys. Fringe Hall of Fame condiment gravy is. Let's just go with it being a condiment for this purpose. A fringe Hall of Fame condiment. Tony Romo, a fringe Hall of Fame quarterback. No Super Bowl rings to his name, but the man has had quite a successful career. Sometimes people leave gravy on the table, leave it on the stove, forget to even add it. They're so excited to get to the main courses, they don't even remember to use it. Just like the Dallas Cowboys have left Tony Romo on the bench. They're so excited for Dak Prescott, so excited for Ezekiel Elliott. They forgot about Tony Romo and the greatness he can bring to your table. Next up... 
Corn and Carmelo Anthony of the New York Knicks. Corn is great while it's on the cob, but once you remove it, some people don't like it quite as much. Carmelo Anthony was one of the best freshmen ever at Syracuse University, winning a national championship for the then Orange Men. Great at Syracuse, just not the same afterward. Still good. Still there. Still won three Olympic gold medals. Corn wins a lot of awards if you're in Iowa. But there's just something missing. Something missing about having that cob. Next, carrots. Roasted carrots. Baked carrots. Mashed carrots. Does anybody mash carrots? Full carrots. Small carrots. Whatever type of carrots you have on Thanksgiving. Joe Flacco. Are carrots an elite leftover side dish? Is Joe Flacco an elite NFL quarterback? Next, Brussels sprouts. Swaggy P of the Los Angeles Lakers. Often talks the talk, but does it really walk the walk? A lot of people tell you how great Brussels sprouts are. Baked, roasted, grilled. Are they really, though? Cabbage heads? Swaggy P likes to taunt, likes to talk his game. Puts up some impressive performances sometimes, but is it really that good? Next on the list, green bean casserole. And former backup slash starting quarterback, Matt Flynn. Of Green Bay Packer fame, Seattle Seahawks fame, a slew of other teams fame. I include him on this list because he's technically still a free agent in the National Football League. So if you need a backup quarterback who you might have to pay way too much for, he's still out there. In comparison, a green bean casserole, no one really knows why someone keeps bringing it along, but you enjoy it just enough when it's there to keep bringing it back. No one really knows why a team signed Matt Flynn until he gets into a game, throws for maybe 480 yards, and before you know it, you've signed him for $20 million and you're stuck with it in the back of the refrigerator. Next, sweet potato casserole. Chip Kelly, current head coach of the San Francisco 49ers. Sweet potato casserole and Chip Kelly have one thing in common. Both were supposed to revolutionize the dinner table and the National Football League, respectively. Both underperformed. Up next, dinner rolls with butter. Bill Jackson, the president of basketball operations for the New York Knicks. And another former leftover player. Rolls with butter when they come hot out of the oven to die for. But when you leave a roll out for too long, it gets hard. It's not the same. Maybe you can save it with the quick throw into the microwave, but most likely it's seen best days. Just better to throw it in the freezer and only take it out for the home games which is similar to Phil Jackson. Hot out of the oven with the Chicago Bulls, the Los Angeles Lakers revolutionized the game as a head coach, won 11 total championships, took some time off until the New York Knicks came calling and decided to have him make their decisions, many of which have not gone over too well in New York. The triangle offense has seen its best days. You can still throw Phil into a situation where... You'll get something good out of it, much like you could a roll in the microwave, but the best days seem to be in the past. Next, we have Tofurky, Colin Kaepernick, a fake, a phony, 
a charlatan. There are many more things to say about Colin Kaepernick, but I think sports media has already covered that gamut. We'll leave it at that. Next, we have prime rib. Why is prime rib on your Thanksgiving table? Why did you spend so much money to introduce prime rib? It does taste great, but why is it here? What did you do? What have you done for us lately, prime rib? Jason Hayward, Chicago Cubs. Signed to a $184 million contract. Did not live up to his name this season, but had one of the best rain delay speeches in the history of Major League Baseball. Coincidentally, the inning before the Chicago Cubs rallied to win the World Series and end a 108-year-old curse. We spent that much money. You didn't really need to be here, but you did do something for us. To the desserts, pumpkin pie, Jason Witten, tight end Dallas Cowboys. All the other Cowboys are getting this recognition. Dak Prescott, Ezekiel Elliott, Jerry Jones taking microphones out of sports media to spew his stupidity to the world. Old reliable Jason Witten. Just like pumpkin pie is the old reliable of desserts, specifically holiday desserts. Your first thought is this again, but then once you bite into it, you remember why you keep him around. Another dessert, apple pie. Eric Spolstra, still the head coach of the Miami Heat. Apple pie, a dessert that takes you back to better days, gets you a little warm and fuzzy feeling inside. Same thing with Eric Spolstra. You see him on the sideline, you remember those days when LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, and Chris Bosh were doing their thing in Miami, winning championships, providing smiles to the citizens of Miami. But now with them gone, it's just a memory, just like maybe... Biting into some apple pie takes you back to happier times at grandma's house or whatever your memory might be. To the drinks, we've got beer and we've got Jeff Fisher. If you're planning to have a beer on Thanksgiving, you want to keep a good balance with the beer that you drink. Take it easy, but get to a good place. Keep yourself right around 500. Not that 79 bullshit. Jeff Fisher, head coach of the Rams. Keep your team right around 500. But much like beer, too much of it will turn you into what's viewed as an alcoholic. Too many losses, which Jeff Fisher has acquired, will make him the losingest coach in NFL history in probably a couple weeks. We've got wine. And David Ross, catcher for the Chicago Cubs who retired after they won the World Series. As we know, wine, when aged over time, is divine. Though maybe only liked by certain demographics, sometimes it's left dusty in the cellar before rediscovered. Very similar to David Ross. Rediscovered by many as the Cubs made their way to the World Series. He aged well, he could still contribute here and there, but only John Lester was really the demographic, the taste of David Ross. Last but not least, hard liquor. And Johnny Manziel. That's it for this special holiday edition of Thanksgiving Leftovers. Let's take a quick break to raid the fridge. When we come back, we'll talk to a Duke beat writer about the start of the college basketball season and some of what we'll see from the Blue Devils this year. 
We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. On to this week's guest, we had the pleasure to speak with Steve Wiseman. He's the sports editor and the Duke beat writer for the Durham Herald Sun newspaper in Durham, North Carolina. He's now in his seventh year covering Duke and all of its athletics, not just basketball. He also does football, women's athletics, whatever Duke athletics has to offer is also covered by him. Before working at the Herald Sun, he did some beat writing work for some NFL teams and other colleges. So we talked a little bit about his time before working at the Durham Herald Sun, some of the different stories he was able to cover before now focusing on Duke Athletics. We focused a lot on the men's basketball team since the college basketball season is beginning to heat up a little bit and there's a little break before the college football playoff rankings come out this coming Sunday and become part of discussion until we get to New Year's. So I thought it was a good time to look at the Duke men's basketball team, what the news is on some of their injured players, and what they might need to do to continue playing at a championship level to get them far into the NCAA tournament in March. So it was great to get some insight on Duke basketball from Steve. Maybe we can talk to him again come March if Duke happens to be playing later into the tournament, knock on wood. You can follow him on Twitter at Steve Wiseman NC. That's Steve common spelling, wise common spelling, man common spelling, NC. Steve Wiseman NC on Twitter, and you can see what he's up to covering Duke for the Herald Sun. Without further ado, let's get into that interview. I'm here with Steve Wiseman. He is the sports editor and beat writer for Duke for the Durham Herald Sun newspaper, and he's been kind enough to join the show. Steve, thanks for coming on. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Not a problem. As we talked briefly before coming on live, we're both a little bit joyful for the Duke men's basketball team to be able to win their game last night. But before we get into that, I wanted to turn back the clocks a little bit and get to know how you got to where you are now with the Durham Herald Sun. What made you decide that journalism was something that you wanted to pursue as a career? Wow. Well, that goes back uh, to actually elementary school um, when uh, I had a fourth grade teacher that had us write stories and post them on a a bulletin board, you know, with thumbtack pens. This is like really old school, okay? Because I'm really old now, so... Um, and I wrote something. I had an uncle who was a high school basketball coach in a small town in Illinois that had a really great season one year. They went all the way to the state elite eight and it was on TV and all that. So, um, I went to his game. This is when I was about nine or 10 years old and I went to his games and then I would next day write something up and stick it on the board up there. Um, and, uh, my teacher said to my parents at a parent teacher conference, I think we may have a little sports writer on our hands here. And so, that kind of stuck with me, and uh, you know, I always like sports and like to ride a little bit, so um, I decided to make a career out of it. So fresh out of college, and to make you feel a little bit older, that's one month after I was born, in fact. So just yeah. to put that into perspective, you got your start with the Charlotte Observer. You jumped around to a couple different papers in South Carolina and Mississippi before winding up in North Carolina to cover Duke. And I know along the way, you were the beat writer for a couple NFL teams covering the Panthers for a little bit, the Saints for a couple of seasons. Did you have a preference covering a professional team as opposed to college teams, or is there a big difference between the two? Well, I mean, there is a difference um, in that, you know, uh, different level of of kids. And um, sometimes 
when you're covering college, you can find stories that haven't been told. It's a little tougher at the NFL level because they've already been through high school and college and people have found out what's going on with him. It's it's harder to kind of have an impact story. And um, I like to tell really good stories that people haven't heard about yet. So uh, I do like college from that aspect of it. Um, I did, I'm not going to say I didn't enjoy the NFL. I really did enjoy the NFL beat the five or six years-ish that I was on that beat uh, with the Panthers and then the Saints because, uh, you know, that's the number one sport in the country and um, everything you write matters. So I did, I did appreciate that. But, you know, uh, covering Duke basketball mainly, and then I covered all of Duke sports for the paper here. But, you know, Duke basketball is the one that's the highest profile. Um, it's NFL-level stuff as far as what people care about. So um, uh, it, is, it is a fun beat, and it's very uh, rewarding. Do you have a story or two that jumps out to you as maybe one that you mentioned that was a story that wasn't told before that you were proud to be able to tell that, whether that be from your time as an NFL beat writer or from what you've been able to do as a college beat writer as well? Yeah, I did. I mean, actually, there's one from the NFL I'd like to share if I could because uh, there was a receiver named Joe Horn who played for the Saints about 15 years ago. He had a pretty good little run with him. And he had been with the Chiefs, and, and they signed him as a free agent um, right before they had – it was the year the Saints had their first um, their first playoff win in 2000 when Jim Hazlitt was their coach. And Joe was the star receiver that year. But they signed him in the offseason. He had been a guy who had um, kind of slipped through the cracks, and, and uh, he was at one point supposed to go to South Carolina, and then um, he didn't make it into school, ended up in junior college. And for a while, he was like washing dishes at a pizza hut and working in a furniture factory because he'd, he'd um, uh, become a father. And so he had to raise money for his family. And this is, and, and then and he ended up going to junior college and then um, he got signed into the CFL. You know, one of those rags to riches kind of guys that ended up being a really good NFL player and it kind of hit the jackpot. So, when he got to training camp that year with the Saints, nobody had really told that story about him and how he kind of made his way up through through the cracks. And um, so that was a fun story to tell uh, about Joe. And then he had perhaps one of the best NFL touchdown celebrations in the history of the league. So if anyone didn't know his story before that, they certainly might have if they looked him up after he pulled the cell phone out of the field exactly. post and celebrated. Exactly. Yeah, that was a, that was a neat moment. That tells a lot about him. That's just he's a fun guy. He was a really fun guy. Right. He's been through been through hell basically. You know, yeah, had a lot of problems with with drugs in his family, his brothers, and and so you know just. Um, he, he's got it made it. And I would like to tell stories about they're very uplifting. What would you say the biggest challenges were in having to immerse yourself, not only with a different school, but with all the sports that a school offers when you're coming to become a beat writer, especially at Duke University, there's some sports that maybe not everyone knows as much about as other ones, because the readers probably expect you to be the guy. So were, were there any right. challenges that you faced having to really immerse yourself in Duke athletics? Sure. I mean, the, the main one was lacrosse. When I got here, you know, Duke was in the middle of, uh, they, they just won the national championship in 2010. Um, the basketball, the men's basketball had, and also men's lacrosse, it was their first men's lacrosse title. And um, so, you know, I'm, I grew up in the Midwest. Lacrosse is not something I'm familiar with at all, but I come inherited a beat where the team is the national champion and they're a streak of going to seven consecutive Final Fours, and of course they've had their problems with the 
the rape allegations that proved to be false. That was long before I was here, but right. so that was just another little curveball thrown in there. I don't want to, I don't want to ignore the elephant in the room. Of course, that was there too. But I'm talking about just the on-field, the play, and, and the game. I had to learn lacrosse. I had to learn what it was like and how to write stories about it and sound knowledgeable, like you say. So um, it was easy to come in and cover Duke basketball. I, I know all about basketball and all about football and baseball and everything else, but lacrosse was the one where I had to had to study up and ask a lot of questions and, and, and be the dummy that says, what's, you know, what's this guy doing here? Why is he allowed to do that? You know? And then um, women's lacrosse too, which is a completely different game. People don't know. I mean, the, the rules are totally different for women's lacrosse than they are for men's lacrosse. And they, they share a lacrosse name, but they're, it's like they're different sports. So um, Duke has a very good program in that as well. So um, I had to learn that along the way. And, um, it's been seven years now since I, this is my seventh year season covering Duke sports. So I hope I've I've made progress and people um, can think think I know what I'm talking about now. So being in Durham, do you have any friendly or maybe even unfriendly rivalries or tensions going on in your office between you and potential, say, North Carolina Tar Heel fans, especially now that college basketball is picking back up again? Oh, that's that's always the case in our neighborhood with two schools being eight miles apart. I mean, it's you know, neighbors and, 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 and everybody else, uh, you know, it's a Duke or UNC and actually um, NC state's only 20 miles away over right. in Raleigh. So um, we have three here and there's always divided loyalties and, and um, you know, Carolina has a, a very good journalism school. So in, in my business, you run across a lot of UNC graduates that, uh, that, that uh, come into these jobs. And so um, they have to learn right away that, I mean, they don't, they're not sports, some are sports writers, but the ones I deal with in my office are more, uh, you know, news writers, things like that. They're young, they're fresh out of school, they're coming in to take a, uh, start their career, and, and they're working at a paper that writes a lot about Duke. <laughs> and sometimes they have to go attend Duke events. In fact, when Duke won the national championship in 2015, I was in Indianapolis covering that, but we had a news writer go over to Cameron Indoor where the, there was a watch party for the game and, and had to write about the celebration and she was a UNC graduate who just graduated a few months before from Carolina. And so that couldn't have been enjoyable for her, but uh, <laughs> she had to, had to do her job and get it done and, did, and she did a good job on it. So um, that shows professionalism. Now I don't pretend to be good at math, but if I'm right, you would have narrowly missed covering Duke's 2010 national championship. That's right. I, I arrived the summer after that. So um, uh, the first team I covered was the team with Kyrie Irving when he only played a few games because of his toe injury, but they were the reigning national champion. They were ranked number one in the country and started off that year winning their first 12, 13 games before they lost the game. So they had, they had a really good team. What was it like getting to cover the championship team in 2015, especially with all the different storylines that were able to go into it with the three underclassmen, the three superstars that were most likely going to lead to the NBA, but a group of older veterans that really helped provide a spark when they might've needed it. Yeah, that was a really fun team to cover because it was the transition or transformation of the program because the year before they had Jabari Parker, Rodney Hood, and those guys, and they lost in the first round of the tournament to Mercer in a game in Raleigh, which you would have thought, you know, full of Duke fans. It was a huge upset. It was a big bummer for the program because they'd lost that game to Lehigh in the tournament a few years before that. So this is twice it had happened in three years. And so, you know, Coach K and everybody around the program was kind of on edge, like, you know, is this going to work? You know, can we, can we, can we win in the one and done era uh, like we had won before? And it was unproven at that point. So when those guys arrived in the summer, 
um, uh, Jaleel and Tyus Jones and Justice Winslow and Grace Allen was in that class too. Uh, I spent a lot of time, you know, talking to them and, and working on some stories before the season even started about who these guys were and, and why why they think they can they can make this work and they can change and and then to follow that team on through. You know, Quinn Cook was the returning veteran guard. He had kind of an up and down career to that point. You know, we didn't know if he could be the kind of leader Duke needed. And also he was a point guard and Tyus Jones was coming in as, as a star point guard at a high school. How were they going to interact? That was another story angle to follow. And it turned out it worked magnificently. And, you know, they went 35 and four and they won the national championship. So uh, it was just a lot of stories to write along the way. And you never, you know, you, you thought they were the best team, but then they had that little stretch in January that year where they lost two or three games in a, in a two week stretch. And, really looked exposed at times. So, you know, were they going to be able to finish it off and, and win the whole thing? Duke at that point hadn't been in the final four since 2010, that, that title year. So there were a lot of, there's a lot of uncertainty about the program and, and how it was going to attack, how long coach K would stay. A lot of things were pending on that year. And then they, they came out and, and, and won the, won the championship. So it was a fun story to tell and a lot of work, but it was enjoyable. What I found interesting for that season, the previous three championships, even in 2009, had teams that were mostly compiled of upperclassmen that had a lot to do with the fact that there weren't really any one and dones. But the 2015 team was really their first team to kind of embrace John Calipari-esque formula where they bring in players and hope that they could bring the best out of them in that short amount of time which was something that we were able to see Coach K do. Do you think that he's sort of fully embraced that one-and-done type formula to his recruiting and his coaching? Because we're going to see that this year if the three freshmen and others that he's been able to recruit come to the court uh, later on in the season as well. He certainly has, and um, it, it kind of started back with, I mean, Kyrie was he pretty much knew it was going to be a one-and-done. And then Austin Rivers the next year, and Jabari Parker. So um, he kind of started this a few years ago, but he had to figure out a way to make it work with his program because he was used to getting guys in and immersing them in the Duke culture and playing defense and sharing the ball and all that stuff. Right. And it takes years for that to, to work. In the past year, he had veteran teams that won titles, right? Like you mentioned, even in the 2010 team you know, with John Shire. And uh, so he had to figure out a way to accelerate that process. And one thing I remember they did after the 2014 team lost to Mercer, I remember uh, that Quinn Cook that night started emailing and texting Jaleel Okafor, Tyus Jones. They were all playing in their state tournament, their state championship events in high school that spring. And here Duke season had suddenly just ended. And so Quinn was already in their ear, like talking to him about, okay, you know, you're going to win your title and then, you know, we're going to start working together. And they started building that camaraderie even before they even got to campus. And uh, that was a big part of it. And, uh, you know, he that, that's one thing Coach K has had to try to do is accelerate this whole thing and, and, and get them into campus a little earlier, maybe in the summer, so that they can kind of bond together because you don't have very much time with these guys. It's a short window, and you got to make it work. Before we get into the team itself, after being around the team now in your seventh season, what do you think are some of the main things that stand out to you as to what makes Coach K such a great coach? His ability to communicate and, and stay on message and, 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 you know, individualize messages for every different guy. And, and, you know, you can't just, you know, coaches always 
can give a, a speech or a statement or whatever team, but then you got to follow it up with individual meetings with people and, and really listen to them, figure out what makes them tick, and then um, uh, figure out the way to make your message work for, for them. And that's something I noticed him do with this team. And also when I've been around him at like Team USA practices when he was coaching the Olympic team a few times, I got to go to some practices there uh, that they had. And uh, he even did it with, with the NBA guys, which you know Kobe Bryant and Kevin Durant, guys like that, that are superstars, that who's this college coach, right? But he has bonded with them in a big way. And that's kind of what made the Olympic team work. I'm, I'm probably getting off what you're talking about with Duke a little bit, but it does bleed, bleed over some. Right. And that you know, he took over an Olympic program that was in shambles, right, in 2005. And they hadn't won anything in a long time, and, and it just, kind of an embarrassment to us a little bit and and he got them all to buy into this whole message of team usa and now look at what they've done since then right they're back at the top where we all think they should be and he he learned from that he took part of his duke lessons with team usa and now he's doing taking that back to duke and he learned things about coaching uh from international coaches that he was exposed to in that part of his career and took some plays and some different schemes and use them for duke now so he never quits learning uh he's a very great communicator and you know people respect what he says because he follows it up and he's he's not a bser you know he kind of says what what it is and you can listen or you're not but you're you know um he, he figures out a way to make it happen so finally getting into this year's team i guess to no one's surprise even though this usually doesn't bode well for them, Duke entered the season ranked number one. Do you think they were worthy of such a ranking to start off this season? I do because, you know, with the the freshman class they had coming in, plus the return of Emile Jefferson for the fifth season, uh, and then Grayson Allen coming back as a National Player of the Year candidate, and you got Matt Jones, who was a starter in the 2015 National Championship team. You have a combination of um, accomplished veterans and star freshmen who are going to be one-and-done players, lottery picks uh, coming in. So this is all obviously before the injuries, right? So we're in our voting. We knew Harry Giles hadn't played his senior year of high school because of uh, knee surgery, but that was a year before. So everything in anticipation was he would be ready to go. Things changed during their preseason practices. But to answer your question, yes, they had this combination that made them the best in the country. And um, I think everybody kind of agrees with that. You mentioned the recruiting class and three of those members, perhaps the three biggest names, Harry Giles, Jason Tatum, Marquise Bold, and five-star recruits have yet to even play a single minute. What can you tell us about their statuses and what you think they'll bring to the team when they're able to finally return to the court? Yeah, um, Giles hasn't played at all since he's been here because he's had that follow-up knee scope early October. and. So he's the guy I've seen the less, uh, least amount on the court. and uh, But everything I hear about him from the scouts and people look at him in high school, you know, he's a 6'10 guy who can go out and shoot three-pointers and he's powerful in the lane. I think, you know, he's really going to be a force when he gets in there. Uh, Tatum, I saw uh, he played in uh, the blue-right scrimmage and a couple of practices that I saw because not all practices are open. But uh, he's he is a scorer. He's a six eight guy that can hit three pointers. He can handle the ball really well. He's very smooth. I mean, I think I you know he he could he could have been a guy that would have gone straight to the NBA and and played this year if the rule would have allowed it. He's that kind of a talent. He's that kind of he's got the build. He's not he's not wiry. I think he's strong. 
but he also has the flexibility to be athletic and handle the ball and shoot. So um, he he'll be a force to, to reckon with on the perimeter. And then Bolden is a bigger guy. He's six ten, uh, two sixty, two two fifty in that range. Just a, a a big guy in the middle, a back to the basket um, center, and he'll provide defense rebounding. He can get some points on the low block when he's healthy. And so, you know, you've already got this team that's now they won over Michigan State. They're seven and one. They only lost one game that was Kansas by two points. And you've got three guys who are going to be NBA first round picks who haven't played a minute. So when they get in, I mean, it's just going to take them to such a higher level. And uh, again, they'll have that combination of, of experienced guys who, who, who have won the high level and this great young talent, which uh, it's going to be hard to, hard to deal with for the opponents. You mentioned Quinn Cook, and one of the interesting things for this year's team is they don't have that typical quote-unquote veteran point guard that they might have had in previous years. Frank Jackson will most likely fill in that role. Do you think he'll be able to mature into that as the season goes on and really become that go-to guy that can help lead that offense? He, yeah, he's already started to show that, and he did it. Uh, what I really noticed it uh, was the, the Kansas game that they lost in the Garden. And then the Michigan State win, uh, when his trust level with Coach K has has grown dramatically over the first few weeks of the season here, and uh, he puts him on the court in situations where, you know, he might shy away from a freshman or or whatever, but he he's earned that with his play, and you know he made that clutch three pointer at the end to tie the game with Kansas before Frank Mason made the winning basket, but they called that play for him and he hit the shot, so. That tells you this is that was his third college game, and uh, so he's shown Coach K and the staff a lot in practice to earn that trust. And so here it is, only you know late November, getting ready to go into December, and he's already got that. And so it'll only grow as time goes on; he'll only get better. And so I think they're in good hands with him out there, uh, helping handle the ball along with Matt Jones and Grayson Allen. One of the things Duke likes to do, as you know, is bring back their former athletes to either work out at a practice or use the weight facilities. John Shire's on the coaching staff from the 2010 national championship team. Nolan Smith has been around. Kyle Singler has been around. Quinn Cook, I'm sure will be visiting whenever he's around as well. How much do you think that helps having those now veteran guys who have moved on to perhaps the NBA or the D league or bigger and brighter things coming back with these younger freshmen or sophomores to kind of show them maybe a little bit more than what Coach K can, or at least better explain to them what's expected at Duke. Right, because as, as good a communicator as Coach K is, he's going to be 70 years old next, you know, February. Right. And so it's a little difficult for him to really relate with a 19-year-old kid. I mean, let's face it, it's just human nature. So um, an example I can give you of that was, you mentioned Nolan Smith. Back in 2015, he hadn't joined the staff yet. He was still uh, recovering from knee surgery that had ended his playing career. And he was doing his rehab at Duke. And a lot of times he would hang out with, you know, he and Quinn Cook are like brothers. They're really close. So he was, you know, around the team a lot starting that year in January. And uh, one night, it was after, after the selection show in 2015, uh, the team got together and watched it. And then they were all going their separate ways. They weren't supposed to have practice that night or anything. And they all decided, hey, let's go to the gym and get some shots up. You know, let's go over to the K-Center. And so they all tested each other, and a bunch of them all met there. And Noah Smith happened to be there, too. He was working out in the facility next door and and, and saw him out there and went out and watched him. They, had, they held a practice without the coaches. And 
after it was done, no one kind of gathered together and said, you guys are going to do something special. You're all, you know, locked in, you know, your roles, you know, and they did it. And so, you know, Quinn talks about how that was a big moment for the team. They're, they just come off losing Notre Dame in the ACC tournament semifinals. And so there were, again, doubt groups saying when you lose a game and they're going into the NCAA tournament as the number one seed. And they were able to have this practice without the coaches and still get, you know, uh, high level analysis from Nolan, who had won a championship team himself in 2010. So that's the kind of stuff that goes on around here that a lot of people don't see. One of the biggest returners, arguably, and obviously Grayson Allen, who really is the newest Duke villain carrying the torch of, say, J.J. Reddick, Greg Paulus. He's kind of accepted that role. I don't think a lot of people may like him that don't like Duke, which I'm sure he's fine with. We know he's been a little bit hobbled of late and hasn't really been able to practice aside from playing in the actual game. So a similar question to the hurt freshman, what can you tell us about how he's coming along and how important of a role do you think he'll play for the team to have a successful season? Well, he's going to have to play at a high level and play a lot of minutes, and they can't do without him. You know, he he's got to play thirty to thirty-five minutes a game, and because he's so trusted on the court and in key situations, you know, he can he can get a basket, he can make a pass, he can help on defense. I mean, um, they they are very deep. So I, you know, if they had to go without him, they could beat teams. I mean, there's no question they have enough talent to do that. But when you're getting into the high-level, you know, ACC games, ACC tournaments, semifinals or finals, and then deep in the NCAA, if you don't have Grayson playing at a high level, it's going to be hard for this team to to be expected to win. They'd have to overcome a lot without him. So, what he's doing now is he he's got a toe injury that happened in the Kansas game, and he and Emil had a collision uh, while on defense against Kansas, and and um, he hurt his toe. It's not really described as a turf toe. I've heard that used and coach K says not really that but anyway to sprain toe of some some degree so he's not practicing at all he's just uh they're, they're not having him do that so he can rest the toe in between games and then he comes out and plays in games and of course he's a guy who knows everything that he's doing on the court he doesn't need the practices to, to get ready uh because he's a veteran but uh, it's a weird situation that here they are not able to have full practices because they've got so many guys that are nicked up and and uh, it's hard for them to teach. I mean, they're already playing at a high level, and and so there's supposedly another level even higher than this once they get healthy and get everybody out there on the court. So that's a little scary to think about. Now, Coach K, for whatever reason, doesn't necessarily like to go deep into his bench for certain seasons. Typical games, we might only see six or seven players on the court. But when the team can get fully healthy, they'll have more depth than they might have in, in, say, previous seasons, at least depth where the talent level is almost equal to the starting players. Do you think when the three freshmen, when the team is able to get fully healthy, that they'll be able to have a quick transition period, considering maybe the magnitude of the games that will happen, if they can all come back, maybe ACC play will already be started, and how that might affect how players are substituted in and out of games as well. Yeah, I think it's going to be important for these three guys to get back sometime in December so they can play a couple of games before they start ACC play. Their first ACC game is December 31st at Virginia Tech. And so we're kind of running out of time here, but there there is a little bit of, of wiggle room there. There's some games in the middle of the month against Tennessee State and Elon. And uh, it looks like that we're on target for that to happen uh, because these guys are starting to do more stuff in, in pregame. They're, they're in uniform now, which they haven't been before. 
Uh, none of them practicing yet and not not going through any kind of contact yet. So we got to get past that hurdle yet. So uh, it's still probably a week or two away. But if they can do that for the middle part of the month, get a couple games in, and then we get into ACC play, then then maybe they can do this. You know, I mean, as far as the rotation goes, you know, right now they like they played six against Michigan State and he's played six a couple times here. Um, Chase Jeter is a guy who's, who's playing a lot better this year than he did last year. He's a six ten sophomore. Looked kind of lost at times last year, but he's he's progressed, which you'd expect him to do from a freshman to sophomore year. And uh, he's earned some some trust that wasn't there last year. So, but yet when Bolden comes back, I think Bolden's probably going to be a better player, and we know Giles will be. They should move ahead of Chase. I think there might be a time when Chase still gets the minutes. Marquise will be, get you know mixed in. And then eventually, I think Marquise's talent is going to take over, and he's going to be the guy uh, at that maybe backup center position because I think Giles will be the starter. So, uh, so if you got six, then you kind of take Jeter away a little bit, and you bring three guys back. That gives you basically eight-man rotation with Jeter as your emergency guy. That if there's severe foul trouble, he can come in and and really do a lot of things. That's that's a pretty good uh, team to have going into March. There's not any more Plumley brothers hanging out in the locker room waiting to get some minutes, is there? <laughs> All done. Uh, they have a younger sister, but she plays volleyball at Notre Dame. So that's right. Um, that's the end of that. So it is. It is weird uh, not to have a Plumley around this team because my whole time covering this team, there's always been at least one, and for a little while there was three. So. They're pretty good people, and I kind of miss them being around. Right, and quite a successful run all three of them were able to have. Is it safe to say that North Carolina will pose the biggest challenge for Duke in the ACC this season? It sure looks like it, and um, they're playing very well. They have a lot of guys back from last year's team. You know, They did lose Marcus Page, of course, but um, I think Justin Jackson is a very good player. Joel Berry has really gotten off to a really good start, and he was good last year. He was the MVP of the ACC tournament, and they played well in in the NCAA's as well, getting them, you know, just within a whisker of the national championship. So, they and K- Kennedy makes his back from that team. So they have a really solid core and and uh, versatile talents, and they've got a Hall of Fame coach, Roy Williams. So, shocker alert here: uh, Duke and North Carolina are the top of the ACC again, and their games are going to mean a whole lot when it comes to the national rankings and seedings and ACC titles and everything. So. That's what we get to do around here in this neighborhood. It's kind of fun. As far as the rest of college basketball is concerned, are there a couple teams that stick out to you that we might be seeing playing late into March as well? I really like Kansas' team from, from seeing them in New York a few weeks ago. And I, cause I like Frank Mason as a, a senior guard. I mean, that is huge when it comes to you know, March Madness is, is, uh, is having a veteran guard that can lead your team. And they have him. Um, you know, they have a they have a, a very talented team, and they're going to be well-tested. Um, I've seen Michigan State now a couple of times, and they're a little banged up. They're missing a couple of their uh, guys in the middle, seniors like Gavin Schilling. But they'll get healthy eventually, and, you know, you don't worry about Tom Izzo's teams losing in November or December. I mean, they're going to be hell on wheels come March, and so you always look out for them. And Kentucky, uh, Villanova's up there again. Um, you know, in the ACC, Virginia is is in the top ten, and I like their team again. I like Perani's in the backcourt. He's a, a, an experienced guard that can can make a difference for them. I worry about you know they lost Austin Nichols, uh, who was a transfer from Memphis, a six nine guy who could help a lot inside, and he got kicked off the team. So 
that's a big loss for them. I don't know how they're going to overcome that. That's what I'm going to watch for an ACC play. But, you know, that program has been on the rise for a while. They made the Elite Eight last year. They were just about to the national championship, or to the Final Four. So um, I know that's a big thing for them, and they're moving in the right direction. So, again, it's going to be a pretty good tournament, you know, once we get there and if everybody's healthy. <laughs> Uh, there's going to be six, seven teams that can do it. And, you know, I don't think this year, time of year ago, we were talking about Villanova much, right? We, you right. Know, even going into the tournament, we thought North Carolina was the main team and uh, and Villanova won it. So somebody come out of nowhere, but it's going to be a good tournament once again. So even though we're still one day before December, I'm going to allow you the opportunity to perhaps make some noise and give your national championship prediction. So if it comes true... You called it on November 30th. What do you think is going to make it to the championship in March? Well, I, I think I think Duke's got the best talent, and everything I've been told from being around the program is that these three freshmen are going to are going to be back, and they're going to be a, a big force come ACC time, and and then into March. Now, you know, again, other injuries could happen; there could be setbacks, but if this group is together and doing what they can do, I think they're clearly the best, the most talented team in the country. And they have, you know, I think it's not much of an argument here, the best coach. Uh, there are other coaches that are on his level, but he's clearly up there at the top. So, Shashevsky. Uh, so, I think that's a hard combination to overcome. Well, Steve, I have to thank you for your time. It was a pleasure getting to learn a little bit about some of the things you've been able to cover and especially about this year's Duke basketball team and some of the things we might be able to look forward to as the season goes on, hopefully a little bit later than some other teams as well. And maybe if things work out well enough, we might be able to talk again in March and discuss some of the things they'll be up to, hopefully, at that point in the season. But I do appreciate your time. Yeah, I enjoyed being on. I'd be glad to be on again in March. if Duke's still playing, which I think they probably will be. Well, knock on wood. I got a wooden desk right here, so we'll be okay for that. Thanks, Steve. I appreciate it. Okay, thank you. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at LondonBridge. You can subscribe to the Bridge Sports Podcast on iTunes while also leaving a positive rating and review so you'll immediately be notified when new episodes of the Bridge are posted each week. You can also find the Bridge Sports Podcast on Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Once again, you can listen to the show live every Wednesday night on Sports Radio America by visiting sportsradioamerica.com or by tuning in to the TuneIn app. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll discuss the college football playoffs and the four teams that will be vying for a national championship. We'll take a look around the National Football League, the NBA, the MLB, what might be going on in college basketball, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.